0: Please join with me in our opening prayer. Welcoming God, we have gathered together so that you may teach us the way we should go. In our times of distress and need, you have provided. When we have stubbornly followed our own plans, you have curbed our impulses. From our days of confusion and aimless wandering, You have rescued us and restored us to our true identity. Meet us now as we worship together to shape us into a righteous, reconciling people. Amen. Please join in our prayer hymn, God Will Take Care of You, United Methodist Hymnal, number 130, verses 1, 2, and 4.
1: Lord, our gracious God, indeed, you will take care of us. You watch over our every need. You are with us through all trials and every circumstance we face. We thank you for knowing that we can trust ourselves to you and that indeed you will care for us. Forgive us for those times when we have forgotten that or failed to believe that and tried to make our own way and and mess things up as we always do when we try and do it on our own. Forgive us, Lord, and restore us to your gracious presence and to your uh, love that is always with us. And Lord, as we are reminded now that you will take care of us in every circumstance, hear us now as we, in this time of silence, lift to you our individual concerns wherever we are right now. Hear us in this time of silence. Gracious God, your word tells us not only that you will take care of us, but that you are Lord of all creation and God over this whole world. And so we lift up not just our concerns for ourselves, but for this country, for our community, for this world, for people around the world who are going through ordeals that we cannot even imagine. Lord, we cry out to you for mercy, for protection, for comfort, for peace. Lord, may your peace reign around this world. Help us, Lord, to be peacemakers. Show us the way to to work for justice and give us that faithfulness to follow your commands wherever they may lead us, even into times of trial, even into situations of danger. Give us that faithfulness to trust in you and to follow you in all things that we may be your witnesses to the ends of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue to worship through the giving of our tithes and our offerings as the ushers come to wait upon us. please join with me in the prayer of dedication. We come with joy and thankfulness for the many blessings we have been given. May these gifts given here and the service of our hands make a difference as we seek to follow Jesus' way. Amen. You may be seated.
0: Today's scripture lesson is taken from the book of Daniel chapter 11 verses 40 to 45. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall advance against countries and pass through like a flood. He shall come into the beautiful land and tens of thousands shall fall victim but Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites shall escape from his power. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and and of silver and of all the riches of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow in his train. But reports from the east and the north shall alarm him. And He shall go out with great fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. The word of God for the people of God. you God.
1: Today we come to chapter 11 of a 12-chapter book. We've been looking at the book of Daniel one chapter a week. Up until this point, each chapter has been somewhat of a distinct unit that stands on its own, although I've been trying to show how they all tie together and relate to one another. The first six chapters each tell a different story, starting at the very beginning of the exile of the Jews into Babylon, going right up to the end of the exile, when they have been freed to go back home. Starting with chapter 7, we were told a a different vision in each chapter, visions given at various times. Chapter 7 in the first year of King Belshazzar, chapter 8 in the third year of King Belshazzar, chapter 9 in the first year of Darius the Mede, chapter 10 in the third year of King Cyrus. At first glance, chapter 11 would appear to continue that pattern, just as every single one of the previous chapters had done. This one starts off with the mention of a foreign king. Chapter 11, verse 1, as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to support and strengthen him. Upon further analysis, though, that verse is not the setting for this vision. When the books of the Bible were written, there were no chapter and verse designations. Those little numbers in the text were, were added centuries later to make it easier to identify and reference different sections of various books. Many of the chapter divisions make sense, as have all of the chapter divisions prior to this point in Daniel. A new story or a new vision justifies a new chapter. That is not the case with chapter 11. The particular speech that is happening here began in chapter 10, verse 20. It is the angel, whom I identified last week as Gabriel, who is speaking. Listen to the flow of his words in this speech. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return and fight against the prince of Persia, and when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come. But I am to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is no one with me who contends against these princes except Michael, your prince. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to support and strengthen him. Now I will announce the truth to you. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now why someone reading and studying those words would have said, you know what we really need right in the middle of that speech is a chapter division. I have no clue. As best as I can tell, the only reason that the chapter is divided there is because it names the year of a foreign king, as all of the other chapters began with the year of a foreign king. The problem with that is that in this case, it has led to very confused and misguided interpretations. If you begin reading right at the beginning of the chapter, as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to support and strengthen him. It sounds like this chapter is set in the first year of Darius the Mede, but if you go back to chapter 10, you realize that we're already two years past that. And if you go on to the next verse, you realize that it is still the angel who is speaking. And if you go back to the previous verse, you realize that the angel who is speaking had just said that he and Michael were contending against the princes of the foreign nations, not supporting and strengthening them. I've read all kinds of interpretations this week about chapter 11, verse 1. Some say it's Daniel speaking rather than the angel talking about his initial support for Darius because Darius was a good king and he meant well. Or some say that it was Gabriel describing how he at first strengthened Darius before Darius went bad and the angels had to turn against him. Seems to me those interpretations are all based on nothing but the fact that there's a big number 11 that was artificially placed right at the beginning of this verse, making it look as though there's a a break between sentences here where there really isn't one. If you read the passage without that artificial break, it's obvious to me that the mention of the first year of Darius the Mede is simply an indication of when Gabriel and Michael began their combined battle against the evil forces of Persia. And when he says, I stood up to support and strengthen him, he doesn't mean Darius, he means Michael, your prince, the only one who had been contending with Gabriel against these evil princes from the beginning. He then says that Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than all of them, and he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Remember, this is a continuation of the vision that began in chapter 10. The setting for it was given at the beginning of that chapter, the third year of King Cyrus of Persia. The three kings to arise in Persia following Cyrus are Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius I. That Darius, the third king to follow Cyrus, is the king Darius of Persia named in all the other books of the Old Testament where he is named, not the more regional ruler that Darius calls, that Daniel calls Darius the Mede. But the vision quickly moves past them to a fourth king. This fourth king is Xerxes, the, the great king of Persia who was wealthier than all the others before him. He's the same that was named Ahasuerus, who was king of Persia in the book of Esther. Xerxes expanded the Persian Empire to its largest extent, larger than any worldly empire before him. He, he even attempted to attack Greece, as is indicated here in Daniel eleven two, but he was defeated in that attempt. Over a hundred years later, when Alexander the Great began his conquest of the world, he attacked Persia with... Special vengeance, claiming retaliation for the attack of Xerxes. It is this same Alexander the Great who is the warrior king of verse 3, who will rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. But then, according to verse 4, while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. If this is beginning to sound familiar, well, it should. These are the same events that we saw prophesied in chapter 7 as the second and the third beast, and as the ram and the goat of chapter 8. Daniel chapter 11 is a prophecy of these very same kingdoms and, and the same kings, but with much more specific detail than we got in the earlier chapters. Why it was necessary for Daniel to receive the same prophecies he had already received several years before, I don't know. Why he was given much more explicit detail here when he had already received the broad-brush strokes, I don't know that either. Most of this chapter reads very much like a history book, except that the events are set in the future rather than the past, and the names are removed. Everything lines up precisely With what later took place historically, from Alexander the Great right on down to Antiochus IV. I'm not going to go through verse by verse, line by line, matching up the prophecy with the historical record. If you're interested in that, you can find it in just about any commentary on Daniel. It's kind of uncanny, though, the way it all lines up. In in fact, the detail given in this chapter is so precisely in line with history that it tends to cause two polar opposite responses from those reading it and studying it today. For those who believe in predictive prophecy, the belief that, that God reveals through certain prophets things that will take place in the future, Daniel chapter 11 is absolute proof that predictive prophecy is true. Everything that is predicted in this vision came to pass over the next few hundred years in astonishing detail. For those who don't believe in predictive prophecy, Daniel 11 is proof that this book, or or at least this section of the book, was not written when it purports to have been written. Rather, it was written in the 2nd century B.C. during the reign of Antiochus IV, but set hundreds of years earlier to give it added weight. That's why the details line up so perfectly, because they've already taken place. Both of those approaches miss the fact that The Bible is not supposed to prove anything. Faith is a gift from God. It cannot be proven one way or another by words on a page, but only by the Spirit within. When you read the Holy Scriptures with eyes and heart enlightened by the Holy Spirit, you see that there is a revelation within it that goes far beyond an account of historical events that occurred thousands of years ago. The scripture reveals something of our world today, of human nature as it always has been and continues to be, and of our God who provides our redemption through Jesus Christ. For example, Daniel eleven twenty seven, The two kings, their minds bent on evil, shall sit at one table and exchange lies, but it shall not succeed for there remains an end At an appointed time, we can easily put that into historical context. The the prophecy here is referring to a time when Antiochus IV will be ruler of Syria and Ptolemy VI will be ruler of Egypt. And at the time, the Ptolemies of Egypt possessed the Holy Land. Antiochus IV wanted to control not just Palestine but all of Egypt as well, and so he he attacked Egypt. And he even gained some support from some of the leading Jews at the time. But Antiochus was unsuccessful in his campaign against Egypt. So the two rulers, Antiochus IV and Ptolemy VI, negotiated for peace. As Daniel 11.27 indicates, though, this was a false peace. Neither ruler had his mind set on peace. Both had their minds bent on evil. So all they were really doing, as Daniel puts it, was exchanging lies. But then the verse goes on by saying that they would be unsuccessful in these duplicitous negotiations, for there remains an end at the appointed time. In other words, God already had a plan for how it would all play out, so their attempts at world domination and their petty lies to one another would really mean nothing, because God was the one in control a control that neither one of those rulers would ever be able to grasp for themselves, try as they might. That's the history of it. But it doesn't take much thought to realize that this isn't just the history of that moment. This is the history of the world. This is the situation still today. Worldly rulers grasp at power When their attempts don't turn out as planned, they negotiate for peace. But peace is not really what they have in mind. What they really have in mind is setting the stage for the next power grab. And so they sit at the table and speak lies to one another. That's the geopolitical reality that has played out time and time and time again, and it continues to this day. But the second half of the verse gives the theological reality. All of the lies, all of the scheming, all of the minds bent on evil, ultimately they will all come to nothing for there remains an end at the appointed time. God is still in control. God knows how it will all play out. God knows how even the worst of evil plots and the most despicable of lies will be used to accomplish his plan, which cannot be thwarted, the end is already appointed, and no one—not Putin, not Xi Jinping, not anyone in this world—can undo what God has ordained to accomplish in this world. Another example is Daniel eleven thirty-two. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. When Antiochus IV came to power, he gained support from many of the leading Jews. Why? Because the Jews at that time were under the control of Ptolemy VI, making him their enemy. And going by that old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend... Many of the Jews decided to support Antiochus IV in his campaign against Egypt, thinking that they would have better treatment under him. Antiochus also operated from a system of patronage, giving treasures and prime land to those who supported him. He even gave the high priesthood to the highest bidder. Imagine that. The most holy position in all of Judaism, the high priesthood, this foreign, ungodly ruler unilaterally deposed the rightful occupant of that office and gave the position to the one who agreed to pay him the highest tributes. This is what Daniel means by seducing and intriguing those who violate the covenant. The covenant of the priesthood the covenant of the temple, the covenant of God's holy law. There were plenty of Jews who were ready and eager to violate these in order to gain power and get in good with the new king. But the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. There were plenty of faithful Jews who were not ready and eager to violate the covenant. Rather, they were ready and eager to defend their faith, even at the cost of their lives. A priestly family named the Maccabees began a revolution in the Holy Land, waging a battle against not just the army of Antiochus, but also the Jews who went along and supported him. Several of the Maccabees were killed in terrible ways. But their martyrdom merely inspired others to join the revolution, and ultimately these rebels won victory against Antiochus. They rededicated the temple, and they secured a period of independence in Judea. Again, that's the history. But again, this is much more than mere history. The prophecy was not just for that one generation of war in Judea. The prophecy has to do with the battle that goes on throughout history between faithfulness to the covenant and acquiescence to the powers that be. Every worldly regime makes its demands to compromise and sacrifice the values of God's kingdom for the sake of worldly comforts. Every worldly power structure offers its bounty of rewards to those who will agree to go along and support them. There always has been, and there always will be, plenty of intrigue to seduce those willing to violate the covenant. The covenant that calls us to work for peace and justice and mercy. The covenant that calls us to gladly sacrifice worldly comforts so that all may have enough. The covenant that calls us to purity of heart and mind and body. The covenant that calls us to break down walls of separation between neighbors. There is plenty of intrigue seducing us to sell out the covenant of God for the promises of this world. But there are also plenty who will stand firm and take action. The second half of the verse refers not just to those who fought in the Maccabean revolt, but to the faithful remnant of every generation who who know that the promises of this world are empty, refuse to compromise on the covenant with God. Throughout scripture, No matter how bad things got, God always promised there would be a faithful remnant that would endure. And so it has been throughout time that no matter what powers have come and gone, whether it was the lion's den that that Daniel was thrown into, or the lions of the Roman Colosseums that the Christians were thrown into, whether it was the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or the gas chambers of the Nazis, or or the lynching rope of the Ku Klux Klan, or, or the tanks of the Russians invading Ukraine, no matter what evil may come, there have always been the faithful remnant who stand up in the face of danger and evil and proclaim, if God will deliver us, then let him deliver us. But if not, we will not falter from our worship and service of the one true God. The next verses in Daniel 11 talk about the persecution of the wise and the faithful, the fact that they will suffer for the stand that they take. And then verse 35 says Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end. Here is an important piece of revelation. Many of the faithful would suffer. Indeed, some of them would even die for their faith. But this would not be a tragedy. It would not be tragedy. Their sacrifice would not be lost. That's what this revelation tells us. God will use their faithful sacrifice for their own refinement and purification. This goes back to a Jewish insight that was at the heart of the exile. The Jews suffered greatly in the exile, but they came to understand that they were not innocent victims. They realized that the exile was the result of their own sin as a people for which they all bore responsibility. But through the exile, God was not just punishing them as if divine retribution is what mattered. Rather, God was refining them. Punishment is not the point. Purifying is the point. The Jews had to go through the exile so that they could come out of it on the other side more holy, more pure, more like the children of God. The same thing holds true every time faithful people suffer for their faith. We need to remember, we are not innocent. None of us are. We are not sinless. We are not perfect. But God does call us to that. That's God's ultimate design for us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Go and sin no more. Anytime we go through a a period of persecution or, or suffering for our faith, that can be A refiner's fire for us. Burning away the dross of sin. Purifying us all the more. Getting us ever closer to that image of Christ. Daniel is revealing here in this vision that the faithful can rejoice even in suffering. Even in death. Because all of it is drawing them closer to God until the time of the end. Because at the time of the end, that's all that is going to matter anyway. Taking up your cross. It may hurt right now, but it is to your eternal benefit to lift that cross high and glory in it. One more verse for us to consider this morning from Daniel 11. The last verse of the chapter. Daniel eleven forty-five. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. The history here is harder to line up. Starting with verse 40, the vision seems to diverge from events related specifically to Antiochus Epiphanes, leading some to think that Daniel is seeing a different king here. Whoever it is that these verses are about, the interesting thing about the passage is, The end that comes to this evil ruler. It's the same end that comes to every evil ruler. He shall come to an end with no one to help him. This is characteristic of apocalyptic literature in general. There's this long, detailed battle, quite a build up to the end with everything coming to a head, and then it's over. Evil is defeated just like that. That's what is depicted here in Daniel 11.45. The evil ruler has gone through much and detailed intrigue and war. There have been battles one after another. He has consolidated his power. He is at the height of his earthly glory, settling down and pitching his palatial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy land. And then just like that, it's all over. He shall come to his end with no one to help him. The world's not going to help him. Why should it? His time is over. All the world cares about is itself. His time is finished. His power is at an end. He can't do anything for anyone anymore, so they're not going to do anything for him either. The world bids him farewell and moves on to the next grasp for power, the next beast that rises up to replace the one before it. Heaven's not going to help him. He rejected God. He he tried to put himself in the place of Christ. He made himself the ultimate ruler and authority over all things. When that rule and authority dries up, what's left? Nothing. Nothing. That is the reality of all earthly kingdoms and all evil kings. They eventually come to their end, and there is no one left to help them. No one who can stop it. No one who can make their power and prosperity last because their power and prosperity was only of this world. And everything of this world has its designated end. Who does have someone to help them in the end? We do. The faithful people of God do. The the ones who have stood by God all along and refused to compromise for worldly wealth and power. Those who have stayed faithful to the covenant through every time of trial, through every great ordeal. For those who make the Lord their God, the time of the end is not an end, but only a new beginning. For our God is eternal, and his promises are beyond the things of this world. We have the host of heaven behind us. We have the Christ as our salvation. We have God as our Lord and our shelter. Not just for now, but forever. Forever. Thanks be to I invite you to stand as you're able now for our closing hymn, which is number 370 in the hymnal, Victory in Jesus. I invite you to be seated. The Lord is our shield, our strength, our protection, our help in every trial. And so, as you come, from, as you leave this place, may you go in that help and in that protection of the Lord, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.